You know, most people, if they have, you know, if they binge eat, it's not the normal food shop that they go eating, it's stuff they buy on top of that. So people are spending, you know, five, 10, 15 pounds a day on binge eating food. You know, it's quite easy in this day and age where everything's gone up to spend 10 pounds a day on the binge without even thinking about it. Hello, Chris. Thank you for being here. Hello, Andy. Thank you for inviting me. What's going on? How the devil are you? Uh, I'm all right, mate. I'm slightly better than you. So, uh, I'm... <laughs> oh, yeah. Man flu is a terrible thing. Oh, probably can't mm. say man flu. Person flu. There we go. Um, who, who's who's joining you today? I can see two tails wagging now. I, there's there's four of them around me. I've got so uh, Idris is lying there in the background. Um, and then I think Willow's on a time that way willow's on the chair oh so idris is is that after idris elba or just a good welsh name no no idris elba he's black and handsome <laughs> brilliant excellent oh, are we allowed to say that um i'm sure you can just stating a fact well, he, well, he is a black he is a black guy and he's very handsome and he is handsome <laughs> we just we just watched the new luther film on netflix actually a couple of days ago and it got pretty mixed reviews me and emma loved it oh yeah i thought it was amazing yeah. have you seen his new thing on apple yet oh is that hijack yeah. No, it sounds like 24 on a plane or something. Yeah, so it looks quite good. Oh, okay. Um, and then he's also in the uh, extract, second Extraction movie, which I think has been designed to be a franchise. Oh, so we loved the first one. Haven't seen the second one yet. But, Very good. But of course now we've had to restart watching Luther from the beginning again. So we're just on season one, episode three or whatever. It's just, it's <laughs> fucking brilliant. So, oh, I tell you, I could talk um, Idris Elba all day, but here to talk about you, the emotional eating coach. So we do like to start these podcasts off, um, start these podcasts off by asking the three W's. What okay. do you do? Who for? And why? So do you want to in, inform our listeners what you do? Uh, what do I do? So basically, I am an emotional eating coach. Um, I help people um, end their poor relationship with food, find food freedom, and eventually, once you've done that process, lose weight for good. Now, I work with people who are morbidly obese like I was, but I also work with people who are fit and healthy but have a poor relationship with food. So I do the entire spectrum of it. Uh, I work with people with disordered eating um, to do that. Um, who do I work with? Um, primarily I work with women. Okay. Um, because they're more open to, uh, receive help. But in my private coaching business, um, I work with men and women, but primarily it seems to work, I work with men, women. Um, so, so women are more, women are more open to it or women struggle more with emotional eating? No, women are more open to it. Wow. Men, men, Men hide. Okay. Men are good at coming. You ask Paul, you know, Paul Moore. Yeah, they're always good at really good excuses. Uh, okay. You know? um, and and it's never the right time. It's never them. It's never, you know, so um, women are, you know, more open to it. They're, they're more open to their emotions and they're more keener to, to take action. Okay, brilliant. And uh, I interrupt you there. And, and the why? Why do you do what you do? Uh, because basically I had a career in consulting in technology i was a senior executive uh i got my redundant i was going to leave this and go back to becoming a management consultant and then one day a guy asked me to just share my story to his group um and i did and it was honestly like an epiphany i realized that there were so many people struggling there and that there was i wanted didn't want people to go through what i went through i didn't want people to struggle 
And I had all this journey, all this experience, and thought, there's got to be a better way. Um, and from that point, I just then decided that forget management consultancy, I'd commit to this and never look back. Blimey. What year was that then? Uh, three years ago. So wow. it was three years in September. Wow. God. Uh, yeah. So, so now I've got to ask this. I'm sure, well, you've been asked this lots of times, but when you talk about losing 100 kilograms on your own weight loss journey over a number of years, I mean, what, what kind of weight did you get to at your biggest then? So, so that's actually my heaviest to lightest. I've lost 120 kilos. Shit. Bloody hell. I can't even work that out in um, like stones yeah. and stuff. It, but. Well, basically I was 37 stone, four pounds. I got down to 15 stone, um, 10 pounds. Wow. And at sort of at your heaviest then, what were the sort of things that we might take for granted that you, you just couldn't do? Wiping your backside. Shit, really? It, you had to do it a special way, in a particular way. There's no way you get an air, a toilet in an aeroplane. Um, you, you couldn't sit in most airline seats, to be fair. Um, what about, in what, and out of what driving and stuff? Yeah, couldn't. Um, there was a time we was in Germany and we hired a BMW 1 Series and I couldn't get into the car. So we had to go and hire a next model up. And um, so there was that. Getting clothes to fit that are reasonably fashionable. You know, if you see any of the photos of my heaviest, I might have sent one to uh, Annie. You know, I've got really poor fashion sense because, you know, you're a bit limited in what you can buy and what you can wear. Um, so um, I think just generally doing anything, you know, going flights of stairs, um, any sort of movement of any sort was like tiring. Um, I played golf quite a lot. I was still, you know, it was quite hard work. And were you seeing like a, a, a doctor at this time? Sort of what were the kind of the the advice you were you were getting, or were you seeking uh, any advice? So I, I didn't. Basically, I got to the, the, my largest size, and it was only by going to the doctor because we'd, we'd been in Dubai on a on a business trip, uh, playing golf, obviously. Um, and I came, and when I was on the trip, I'd had some trouble breathing, and right. um, the guy I was staying with in the room, um, he wouldn't share a room with me ever again because of the noise I made at night, or I wasn't breathing. I thought I felt really unwell, and I was 39 at the time. I think I'm coming up to 40. Perhaps I should get a bit of a health check. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I had put a bit of weight on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I went to the doctors, and basically just looked at me and said, "Wow, you know, um, that's you know, um, I, I couldn't get weighed in the doctors because I broke the scales, so I had to get weighed in the hospital, uh, and then came back, and then over a series of like a week or so, was worth of tests, he went from giving me 10 years to live to six months to live. Six months. Yeah. shit right okay and what was your kind of support network your relationship status at the time i, I was married in a really toxic relationship at the time right okay didn't help. um and that was one of the things that made me put weight on because it was like a protection and the bigger i got the more i felt safety and i found food for comfort um and again i've had a lifetime battling with with uh, disordered eating and I've had a bad lifetime of yo-yo dieting, so I was always good at putting weight on and putting, losing it. And I thought, okay, I'll do my tried and tested, you know, crash diet, which was cornflakes and tuna fish and mashed potato. And it worked, you know, because it always has worked. But when I spoke to the doctor about it, he said, well done on the weight loss, but that's not sustainable. Oh he said, you know, you need to do something else. So I started working with a nutritionist, um, started losing weight because obviously here's the thing when you're 37 stone losing weight's actually quite easy right. because all you got to do is you know you, 
I was burning 4,000 calories just being alive. I could stay in bed all day and burn 4,000 calories at that size. Wow. Wow. So it's quite easy to start losing weight Mm. rapidly because you've got got to do is reduce your food intake a Mm -hmm. bit and move a bit more. And I was dropping, you know, sort of three, four, five pounds a week in the first couple of of weeks because I was just restricted what I was eating and then moved a bit more. It's interesting, you, you said there, like, something you struggle with for a lifetime. I mean, what, what, I mean, literally, what kind of age did you start having challenges with eating? Like, wh- when you were uh, a kid, you mean? Yeah, basically, it started from sort of nine years old. So at nine, um, my brother had a um, road accident, uh, a minibus accident at school. And he, so for like two years, um, my parents sort of like focus was purely on him. Mm. And I got put in, put together. The care of a relative, of care of a, of a family friend, and that woman was amazing, right? Uh, your typical seventies housewife with a penny house coat, right? right? Um, but and she, her way of dealing with anything was food. Right. If you were sad, she fed you. If you're happy, she fed you. She could miraculously <clears throat> whip up a slice of cake and a hot chocolate at any moment. Yeah, it was, just, right. it was amazing. But she also had rule like you had to clear everything off your plate and. All of this. So throughout my early years, the only adult interaction I ever got was food. It was either with her, or I'd go to the bakery, or I'd go to the sweet shop, or I'd go to the And these people showed me care, attention, mm. love. Um, but it was always associated right. with food. Okay, that's interesting. And and you, you also mentioned that um obviously you deal with people who have like these weight challenges yeah. but you said you you don't you deal with fit and healthy people who who struggle yeah. with emotional eating so that 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 sounds like almost like a opposite so so what kind of a bad relationship do they have with food if they're fit and healthy uh basically they 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 still binge but they over exercise they're, they're very very active but they've got a poor relationship food and normally been dieting and exercising all their life and they're sort of like demonizing food so they still binge eat but then they'll punish themselves in the gym or they'll punish themselves, you know, and doing long walks or they'll go or they're constantly on a diet. So they don't necessarily overeat, but they're binge eating and then purging and then, you know, purging, not say like a bulimic food makes themselves sick, but they do it by exercise. Right. And I know from my only personal experience, <clears throat> which is one of the reasons I didn't stay at 15 stone 10 pounds because I was actually being diagnosed with bulimia via exercise because I was over exercising to make up because I didn't want to go back to where I was. Right. I was still eating too much, but I was training for triathlons. I was running, you know, I was exercising like four or five hours a day. Wow. Um, Plus you've, have you done triathlons then? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Wow. And, and what are the kind of the triggers for emotional eating? I mean, can it happen at any age or does it tend to happen like early on in life and it's deep rooted like that? Uh, it can happen at any age because basically quite often it's a trauma response. So um, most people, most people emotionally eat, right? However, you know, it's most people will have a binge and go, you know, I feel sad I'm having a bar of chocolate, but that's it. And then tomorrow they get back to their life, they get back to normal. Most people like binge at Christmas, but it doesn't become a two week or two month binge. It's like, yeah, I've had a good time. I'm back on it. But as somebody who uses food for comfort or is using food to fill their emotional void, that's all they've got. So, because, you know, and that's the difference between them because you've got, you know, because people self-soothe with shopping, mm-hmm. with scrolling on phones, with alcohol, with drugs, whatever. Um, it's just 
it's a similar approach. Right. And I mean, obviously, in your approach, you talk about self-awareness a lot. I mean, what are the kind of if warning signs, the right phrase to use, but when you think, oh, actually, am, am I emotionally eating now? When, when, when do you notice that it's, it's becoming a problem or it could become a problem? What would people look um, out for in their habits? Basically, if you are eating, right, past the point of fullness, right, then that's normally a bit of a red flag. If you are eating food and you're thinking, how, you know, I had a full packet of crisps, they're all gone, but you can't remember eating it. You know, that's all like it's mindless eating. So that's right. sort of like a bit of a red flag going, hold on, why, why is that happening? If you're, if you're eating at something, so if you're eating as a response to something, again, okay. that's a sort of red flag. But it's like if it, it only becomes a problem if you sort of continue it. So if you then, you are angry at somebody um, and you, you've had a crap day at work, you come home and you smash you know, a load of takeaway mm. um, and then you go and eat a load of chocolate and you then feel the guilt and shame and the next day it's like, well, you've blown it, now you continue it. Those are sort of warning right, signs. Okay. That they, you know, Because some people can, can come in and be a bit you know, miffed and they can eat a takeaway to feel better, but then the next day they're back in the gym and there's no problem. Mm. But if this continues, if you have, shame and guilt attached to it then that's that's a red flag to sort of take action and and does this sort of go hand in hand with alcohol or does it tend to be one or the other i've had a shit day at work i'm angry like say i'll come home and i'm gonna have like three chinese meals or i'm gonna have a bottle of vodka or can the two be linked two are very much linked to be honest quite a lot you know quite a lot of people um if they've got a poor relationship with alcohol quite often they then have a poor relationship with food right um, and what quite often what you also find though is people who give up alcohol sometimes then turn to food because it's in sort of natural progression. And the problem with treating, you know, uh, I'll say a food addiction again, it's got to be careful about it, call it food addiction. Um, but treating somebody who's got a poor relationship with food is that unlike alcohol, you can go, I'm not drinking that again. You have to eat, so you've got to be really mindful okay. of that. You know, you, you can eliminate alcohol. You can even get alcohol-free beer, wise. You know, could, you could still have all the taste, but not do it. But unfortunately, they haven't created zero-calorie beer, a zero-calorie chocolate, and zero-calorie pizzas yet. I wonder if that'll be you the know, next so- thing. I mean, like I say, I mean, um, I don't drink much. I used to drink quite a bit. Didn't drink at all for two years. But like I say, the, the choice of no alcohol beers now, it's 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 massive. Like you know, we're meeting up. Um, a load of us tomorrow night and I'll just have a couple of Heineken zeros or whatever and it's brilliant but like say food is to a certain yeah, extent you food have to eat, you know mm. uh, and that's the thing you know you, you can't you can't abstain you can abstain from alcohol but you can't abstain from eating you yeah. know so you're always gonna have to eat now you can always make good choices and that's part of the education process and this is the thing with all of the misinformation that everyone's gone through you know everyone demonize you everyone demonizes food and they're going you know oh, you shouldn't eat this and shouldn't eat that. And then that creates this problem within you that you, well, what do I do now? You know, what's good, what's bad? You know, that's bad. And it's like... Shouldn't you even have a spa team now, according to the World Health Organization? So that's obviously got some people, uh, that's their social media content sorted for the next month. Oh, yeah. You know, don't drink Diet Coke. But everyone's going to tell you drink Diet Coke. Oh, don't drink... It's like, well... Yeah, it's... it's It all goes through something. You know, there'll be another study in another six months that will say something else differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean... I mean, without giving sort of away all your secrets, I mean, in your coaching process, mm-hmm. you utilise a range of techniques to, to sort of break the cycle of emotional eating. Can you sort of explain, sort of give an idea of sort of what, what one or two of these techniques might be? 
So there's there's a there's a couple of really interesting ones at work, and the the one I love to get people to do is quite often people say, oh, you need to dis you need to sort of dismiss urges, you need to banish them. Well, I prefer the approach of of surfing an urge because the more you get to understand things, okay, the more you get to understand yourself, the more you can deal with it. So like the technique of urge surfing is just like sitting with it, sitting with that discomfort for a bit, treating it a bit like a wave, you know, because like, you know, you have a wave will sort of peak and then it'll dip down and it'll mm-hmm. pitter, you know, it'll peter out. In the same urge surfing, you can sort of like just sit with it, acknowledge that discomfort because it will pass after time. Now you can use distraction techniques as well if you want to, but you know, one technique I use is get people to practice with something simple like a phone. So if you put your phone in front of you and like set a timer for 20 minutes and just sit and watch it and you can have messages, you, you can't touch your phone for 20 minutes. Right. It's a great practice for urge because the urge, you'll see a notification come in, you're like going, I want to pick it up, right. I want to see what it is, I want to see what that message is. And it's like, no, you sit with it. And it's a good practice to get used to it. And then when you're doing that, you start feeling... What was that emotion I felt? Was that anxiety? Was it excitement? Was it, you know, uh, and then when you get used to them emotions, when you're having the same for emotionally eating, you can like go, okay, I, all I know is their emotions and they're going to pass. And coming back to the question of why am I wanting this food? You know, am I genuinely hungry? No, I'm not hungry. So there's something else driving that urge. And once I understand that, then I can actually take action. So rather than trying to dismiss it, you sit with it. You sit with this comfort mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. because after a bit of time it's been like cold water therapy you know, the first time you do it it's horrible but you breathe you breathe through it you get used to it and then you start to you know understand it and embrace it a little bit more and this is the same process with, with sort of urge surfing we um, talk a lot here about about your comfort zone um and having one foot outside your comfort zone obviously for some people to any yeah. sort of discomfort um, is, a, is a challenge. It's interesting what you said about the phone there, because, yeah, we probably know quite a few business people who they couldn't go two minutes without their phone, <laughs> let alone let alone 20 minutes. That The dopamine hits you get. It's yeah. it's massive. And my teenage daughters, they're just never apart from their phones, which is probably a whole other podcast in itself. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And, and do, you think, do you think this subject, maybe just here in the UK, do you think mm-hmm. emotional eating is getting better it's getting worse and and either or what are the contributing factors to that um i think it's definitely getting worse can we just blame social media is that the cause of everything um i could blame the credit crunch i could blame the supermarkets uh i definitely blame the big food companies and this is great because you're in marketing aren't you yeah yeah yeah, absolutely and and here is the crazy thing right and i saw this in research and this is in the US, so we'll take a picture. But in the US, there is more time booked in MRI scanners by the food companies than there is for Alzheimer's research. Because wow. they are wanted to see how we, when people eat this food, how it lights up the brain. Is it hitting the right receptors? Is it doing this? And I'm thinking, that's crazy. You know, and on the flip side, when you look at marketing, it's always like, you know, um, or look at all the vegan food that, that is made to produce to look like meat. But it's like you would never eat it. It's all ultra high processed food, but which is very addictive and very sort of unhealthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, the food company is always looking at two for one offers, always looking at those deals, they're always making it available. So and it's always appealing, it's always marketed in the right way. And I think that creates a problem. I think 
there's also this social acceptance, so to speak. Now, you know, I'm I'm a firm believer that you know everyone has a right to be whoever they want to be and whatever size they want to be. And, but on the flip side of that, there's like a a sort of danger in the fact that everyone seems to want this quick fix. You know, we look at you know jabs on the NHS. Mm-hmm. You know, so social media creates this ability that I want it now. But if you think about it, if somebody is, you know, five, six, seven, ten stone overweight, they didn't get that weight overnight, but they want to be slim. They want to lose weight without the work. They, they, mm. Everyone seems to take, uh, everyone's like, uh, accepts no responsibility for it themselves. Everything has to be quick and easy. One of the things yeah. I say to all my clients, yeah, one thing I say to all my clients is, you need to stop telling yourself the story you're powerless over food. Because nobody sits there and force feeds you. Nobody puts a gun to your head to put that food in your mouth. And I can say this from a position that I used to be mm-hmm. that person telling me mm-hmm. that story. So I've got every right to say that to somebody because you're not. If you say your power is to food, you're giving away any chance you've got of making change. Yeah, lack of responsibility right. seems to be right. Yeah, yeah I mean, I was, I was going to actually sort of ask a bit about body positivity because obviously it's, it's great to be happy in your body, no matter what that sort of looks like. But when it starts affecting your health, I mean, do you have any any views on that? Because obviously it's it's a massive thing on social media now, isn't it? And and, and advertising in general, to be honest. Well, yeah, and I think you know, we should always ensure people are trying to better themselves. And for me, I would say it's got to be, you know, it's got to be a choice, right? But... You've also got to think about the consequences of your actions. So I know I'm a little bit heavier now because I was ill last year and I've been ill and I've, on, I've been on these drugs and they've affected my health. But I know that for me to help myself, you know, losing a bit more weight again now is going to help me because it's going to. I'm a fifth. I'm 51. You know, all of those markers are not good now. If I've been my previous self at 50, well, I've made 51, but um, you know, I'm grateful for the changes I've made, but. You've really got to focus on having that right mindset. Now, not everyone needs to be six-packed. Not everyone, mm-hmm. but you need to be fit. You need to make sure that you're not a burden to society. Well, that might sound a bit harsh, but you know, we need to be looking after ourselves. And, and if the pandemic taught us anything, it's like, yeah, you know, we've got to take responsibility for ourselves. We've got to really sort of like say, right, I'm gonna, you know, I've got to protect myself. Mm-hmm. And that can, you know, don't get me wrong. I've been, I'm not not a believer in BMI because it's a it's a false measurement. Because, you know, when I was playing rugby, you know, um, and I was like 17 and a half stone. Um, I was fit as anything, but as far as the doctors said, you, yeah, you're obese. Right. Okay. Most professional rugby players are mm, obese, mm. according to the BMI index. Yep. Yeah, but mad, isn't it? They're not. I, I remember uh, my mother-in-law, she's, I think, 88 now, so it's probably about five years ago she um, tore her Achilles, so not what you want to be doing at any age, let alone in your 80s, and she was in hospital, yeah. and this doctor, never forget, like, said to her that, you know, things are really busy at the moment. This was pre-pandemic, but said, he said the sad fact is a lot of people are in here because of lifestyle choices, and obviously that doesn't just mean eating, smoking, drinking, all, lots of factors, but it's like their own choice, so it's, it's their responsibility. Um but yeah. that, that that's quite hard, I think, for a lot of people to accept that they 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 can have control over this. Yeah, yeah, because you'll hear you'll hear it saying that. I want you that. Um, oh well, you know, come back to food companies. Oh well, convenience foods are so much cheaper than fresh foods, and you know it's expensive to to feed a family, and 
And I'm sorry, and this may cause a lot of offence to some people, but I don't believe that because, you know, if you, as long as you can cook, as long as you can get the, you know, there are lots of options available to get, you know, get the the right meat, the right mm-hmm. vegetables. It needs a bit of work. Mm-hmm. That's all. It's, it's, it's not as easy as going, oh, look, yeah, there's, there's loads of chicken nuggets. You know, and it's a pound for a bag, and there's a bag of oven chips, and there's another pound. You know, it's two pound. Yeah, I fed my family four for for two quid. But you know, is that really got them? You know, fed them properly? Is it what's the nutritional value? No, it's not, and it's not teaching the next generation about food. I mean, often um, it's not money, is it? It's it's like you say, it, it's effort, and I think sometimes you can't you can't appreciate how how any sort of effort is just too much for for some people, unfortunately. And, and, and it's amazing when people talk about money as well, especially especially if somebody's a binge eater, a mostly eater. Firstly, they're all liars. Right, I okay. Like say that because I was. Because they lie, right? Go because they never tell, because they, they eat in secret. They never tell the truth about what they eat. Um, they, you know, they buy stuff without people knowing. So, they, you know, they lie, you know, because mm-hmm. part, because you're, if you, you're being secretive about it, mm-hmm. you're buying food. You know, most people, if they have, you know, if they binge eat, it's not the normal food shop that they go eating. It's stuff they buy on top of that. So people are spending, you know, five, ten, fifteen pounds a day on binge on food. You know, it's quite easy in this day and age where everything's gone up to spend ten pounds a day on the binge without even thinking about it. So, so what kind of do, what kind of food would you eat in a day when when, when you were sort of like thirty seven stone mark? Oh yeah, so um, it would probably start with some sort of cooked breakfast probably on my way to work um then by mid-morning i'd stop and go and get a starbucks with a cinnamon swirl uh my first lunch would probably be a meal deal first lunch supermarket yeah first lunch yeah yeah, right right okay um and then my afternoon later on i had something a bit hotter so i'd go and get i used to work in the city at the time so i'd go and get maybe like um uh, a burger or kfc for my second lunch um and then on the way home, probably grab, you know, have a couple of pints and grab something, you know, um, to eat there and then eat when I got home. So um, that'd be, you know, I could easily, you know, at my worst, eat 10,000 calories. Well, actually, my worst probably 20,000 calories a day. But that's not eat, not difficult when you're having, you know, double pizzas, when you're having, you know, full fat coffees, cakes, biscuits, chocolate bars. You know, it's really easy to... To ramp up those calories i suppose ultimately it will always come down to responsibility and choice but like I say i've been in that city environment before and the drinks after lunch you know we worked in london my wife and i for 10 years you know that can become quite habitual you've got every food from every nation on your doorstep whereas now in rural shopshire you know no one will deliver to our house so even if i really wanted something chances are i can't be asked to go in the car to go and get it but when it's there but I suppose still, like you say, you've still got a choice to walk past that fast food yeah. restaurant. But yeah. I guess... Again, come back to lying. Hmm. I used to, you know, my wife used to say, oh, what have you eaten I'm not eating a lot, babe. What's the tea? And, and she's like, look at me going, you're getting bigger. You're getting fatter. You, you're getting fat on fresh air. Something wrong. Yeah, because I'd say, oh, I haven't had much. And then if she, when I lived in London on my own and she moved back to Wales, oh, it was like free reign. I'd be going out with, I'd go out with, with suppliers, with mates, you know, and there'd be massive curries and then there'll be eating competitions. And again, I, I create this persona of the guy, you know, the dustbin. I'll be like, don't worry, I'll finish it all off, lads. Don't, you know, I was always good value to take anywhere because, you know, I'd, I'd eat everything. And it's, 
I look back, it's quite embarrassing now, but you know, that's that was part of my identity. I had to change. It's amazing, like like you mentioned about triathlons to go from like sort of, um, I guess, fit playing rugby to thirty seven stone, back to like running triathlons. I mean, that's that's just. I mean, mo- most athletes couldn't do a triathlon. I've just done the London Marathon, as Paul's probably mentioned a few times. Makes a joke about it, but it's like yeah. bloody hell. That was. I've done some physical challenges, but that was tough. But I mean, that that that's amazing. What kind of fitness stuff have, have you done since you you sort of lost lost all that weight? So. So yeah, it's quite funny because basically, um, well, I used to, I was on the cusp of an international rugby career when I was sort of eighteen, and I got uh, badly injured on my knee ligaments, and that's probably that started my adult weight gain. Right. Okay. Because um, up until that point, I could I could hide eating because I was like training three times a week, playing three times a week, doing sports at school. It was mm-hmm. like I was I was okay. And obviously, I got injured and started putting my arm and found booze. And I'd, basically, the doctor said, you'll never play rugby again. And I was like, okay. Oh. So I sort of accepted that. And then through my life, just put on weight. And obviously, at 40, um, I started losing weight. And then um, from sort of like, by the time I'd moved to uh, Sandbach, and I'd between 40 and 45, I still had a really bad relationship with food. I was losing weight, putting it on, losing it. And it wasn't until, funny enough, uh, my epiphany for fixing my emotional eating took place in Starbucks in Shrewsbury. Are you joking? Wow. No, the, the one I, in the centre of town? I was... I, on the square? Yeah. I basically... Sorry? On the, on the square in Shrewsbury? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I went... I was at work. I was in a really bad place at work. Uh, lots of stress. Um... Uh, my eating was out of control. My drinking was starting to get a bit out of control. And for some reason, I don't know, um, uh, I lived in Sandwich. I used to work in Birmingham. And I got the train, and I got to Crewe, and I thought, I'm not going to Birmingham today. I got on the next train, and it was taking me, it was going down to Cardiff, but I, I got off at Shrewsbury, because I used to live in Shrewsbury, funny enough. I didn't know that um, either. Wow. Yeah. Centre of the universe, it's like Stella Street. Yeah. Uh, I used to live there uh, when I was a kid. Um, and... Yeah, so I went to the Starbucks and I got my traditional, I got my skinny, um, I was not skinny, I got my normal full-fat caramel macchiato and a cinnamon swirl. And I sat down, got my laptop home, and then my mind's blank for like three hours. I cannot, got no recollection of three hours. But the next thing I remember is my cake's gone, my coffee's empty, and I've got no recollection. I thought, there's something wrong here. I really need to do something about my life because if I don't do something, then I need to change. Uh, otherwise, I, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to be around. Um, so was this I'm after that? Do- was that after the doctor had said you got to do yeah, something? Yeah, this was five years afterwards. Oh God, so I, right. I'd okay. Weight. So I'd lost, so when they first started, I lost quite a lot of weight, I went down to about, um, uh, 19, 20 stone. Um, and then I started putting weight back on again. They basically yo-yoed for a couple of years between, 20 stone and 27 stone. Right. And I was back up to 27 stone and I was like, this is out of control. Mm-hmm. And um, in the pictures, there's a picture of me um, when I was at 39 on the A380 at my heaviest uh, airplane and I was at my heaviest air. And then we won an award and it was the first time I'd seen my photo. And the, and the guy who I saw in 2011 who 
was a mess, was broken, and I never want to see again. When I saw his photo in 2016, I'm like going, he's back. He's back. And I, I just couldn't cope with it. So I basically thought, this isn't going to work. I had a chat with my HR team. Uh, obviously, we had private medical care. Um, they suggested, you know, talked about my problem with food and everything else. Um, and they said, well, look, you know, I'm going to a clinic. You know, get some help. So I went to a well-known clinic. Um, and I survived three days before I broke out because I couldn't cope. Wow. So so what was day one at this clinic like? Is it literally cold turkey? They just... Uh, oh, it, no, no. Basically, you're in a group. And um, the group was run by a, a psychologist. You know, she was freshly trained, trained. And she was like, perfect. Beautiful young lady. Perfect in a way. And she was talking about things. I'm like going, have you ever got up <laughs> in the middle of the night and walked to Tesco's through a very dodgy part of London, risking your life to go buy 12 donuts? Mm, no, no, no. And I was like, this isn't about me, this is about you. I was like, but do you actually understand? It's, just, it's not whether I understand or not. This is a safe environment. I was like, so I basically lost my shit. Right, um, right okay. No, um, carry on. After the time. I've dropped the um, F-bomb in the I first sentence. Mental. I went completely mental. Oh, shit. So much so that they said, right, you need to go into a room. I don't, you know, and, um, and I had my first session with a psychologist. Just, you know, it's, they were trying to go and delve into things. I don't know. This, this isn't going to help me. It is going to help you. you know, so, um, so I then kicked off the psychologist. So the third day, I remember the chief psychologist, and um, he's going, listen, you're very unstable. He says, we're not careful. You know, we're going to have to section you. I'm like, There's oh, nothing wrong with me. I just don't agree with what you're doing. And I said, and I don't agree with what's going on here. He says, you know, so we basically had a discussion, and we mutually agreed that it'd be a good idea that perhaps this isn't for me. So I left. Um which is quite funny because I told my wife I was uh, away in America for two weeks. Oh, God, right. So you came back after three days? I came back. You stayed in London for a day and then came back after four days and said, oh, yeah, sorry, Daniel. It finished early and came back. Because, I mean, to talk about sectioning, I mean, shit, that, that's, that's serious stuff. You must have properly yeah. lost it with them. Oh, I was, I was, I was, yeah, not a very happy bunny at all. So what was, what was the, the, the positive step you did after, after leaving the clinic? So, I left that, and then basically um, I went and had a chat with a friend of mine, um, and she'd been through lots of um, addictions. You know, she'd done um, drugs, alcohol, food. You know, she had a problem with food herself. Um, and she says, have you thought about going to Obese Anonymous? I was like going, well, I'd never heard of it. Um, I said, well, no, I hadn't. And I thought, oh, so I can't be doing this therapy thing. She says, no, no, just go to it. I said, okay, so... I went and I and I found for the first time a connection. I found something. Now, it's interesting my story by the way because I sort of fell out of it afterwards because of I've never some heard of, of it. Beliefs. Is that still that still exists now as a, as a yeah anyway, globally yeah. So basically, wow. it follows the same principles as alcohol anonymous. Okay. You know, similarly, it's, it's the same twelve steps. Um, and and again, I really appreciate it. The, the only thing that I fell out of favour with it was this. Um, once I understood more about myself, and I've actually been working with Paul, um, it was I had I couldn't this whole giving myself over to higher power, this whole you know oh you're powerless. I was like no I can't do that because that was keeping me stuck. And one thing I like to say to my clients is if you've got something that's keeping you in that place, you need to break free from it. And that's why quite often you know people relapse with AA and other things mm-hmm. because it's like you know. There's that, not say forgiveness, but it's like, well, you know, it's not your fault. You know, 
you're powerless. It's like the, the higher power, you know, you've got to give yourself the higher power. So again, for me, OA was really instrumental in me changing my life. And the tools are amazing. And the whole going through the 12 steps was amazing. And if anybody wants a book to read, Recovery by Russell, um, I was going to say Russell Howard, not Russell Brunson's name and then. Russell Brand. Yeah, Russell Brand. Recovery by Russell Brand. Um, if I had read that book at the beginning, it would have made so much sense. Because the way he explains 12 Steps is amazing. And again, if anybody's interested, check it out. That book is just really, really good. Even if you not have a problem with food, you know, just the way he explains it is brilliant. Um, so I then went on this journey and thought, okay, I need to do this. And then I started having really good success. I started losing weight. I started getting fit and healthy. I started getting training. And the weight was coming off really healthily, quickly as well. Um, and, and I thought, okay. And did you feel when – yeah. sorry, on, 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 this, on this step you're at now then, when did you start sort of incorporating gym work? Because I, I understand that, you know, some people might have a fear of going to the gym. They want to lose weight and what people might think. Um, did, did you incorporate that quite early on? Yeah. So the first couple of months I did was walk. So for the first couple of months, I basically said, right, I'm going to do 10,000 steps a day. Uh, and each week I increased it by a thousand. So wow. at the end of the 10 weeks, I was doing 20,000 steps a week, a, a day, sorry. Shit. Um, and that was, and that, honestly, the weight just melted off me. Um, and then I thought, okay, I needed accountability. I'm one of those people who needs accountability, right? Um, so I said, right, I need to get a personal trainer. But And I tried it before, but I needed somebody who I could be honest with and say, look, I've got this problem. And, you know, don't just give me a meal plan. Don't just do this. You know, you've got to understand that that's not going to work because, you know, I've got these terrible behaviors. So I found a, a trainer who could help me, support me. Uh, and he had his own private gym in his garage in his back garden. Okay. So I didn't have to write, go into a commercial gym. It was all very private and secure, which, again, helped me at the time. I basically just did that. I got stuck into this gym. Um, uh, and I found a love for it. And I found competitive and he made it interesting. He made it more like, you know, I said, I've got a goal that I want to play rugby again. Um, so I did that. And then um, we were just... Uh, I just started working for a couple of months and then we were driving in crew towards Nantwich and I saw these people doing this triathlon. I thought, oh, I'd never be able to do that. So maybe me said, right, I'm going to do that next year. Wow, so gave yourself a year. To my, yeah, so I went back to a trainer and says, I'm doing a triathlon in a year's time. He went, okay. Um, so basically the following year I then ended up my first triathlon. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, and and, and, and then, you and then, cycled at all in your sort of earlier no, no, life? Really. Swam? I, I, hate run, I, I hate running, right? I'm a rubbish swimmer. I'm okay at cycling. Yes. Why I'd pick to do a triathlon, I have no idea. A duathlon appeals to me, but swimming, I've just, you know, I can swim, but bloody hell, a couple of lengths, and it's like, right, I want to go and sit in the spa pool now. When when I did it, it was so funny. My father and all, God rest his soul, um, they came to the pool and were watching me, right? And... Yeah. Um, my wife tells me, I said, you started watching me, she says, he's sinking. He's not going, he's not going anywhere. I was basically swimming, but wasn't getting anywhere. And he goes, Carmen, I can't watch because I'm going to go and wait outside. Um, and I managed to find my room and I started moving. But she, she says, he was just like bobbing along, along the pool. She said, you weren't going anywhere. Because 
I was like just struggling to, to get into my room. But uh, yeah, it, uh, I'm terrible at swimming. And you know, like, so um, something like open water swimming would be almost like my worst nightmare. Like, you know, swimming pool could probably handle, but like, like one of our, one of our friends my, um, my she swam Bala Lake. I second, think. my only ever Olympic distance triathlon. Oh, Bala. My only ever Olympic distance triathlon was in Bala. And that was horrible. Oh, no. I'm doing it again. I'm, I keep saying I'm going to do another triathlon. Uh, I don't know if I'll do another uh, one, but uh, that's amazing. So, yeah, so you um, did your first so, triathlon, and, and how how much before when you had your epiphany when you were presenting these people about your um, about what had happened to you, and you realised this is what you wanted to do with your life. So where are we now in your life? Have you done the triathlon? Five years afterwards. Okay. So I had a, a five-year recovery journey, I would say, um, to get to where I was. Um, and in that five years, I went from being like you know very big again. I lost loads of weight. Um, I started, I did a triathlon. I did two Tough Mudders. Uh, started playing rugby again for the vets and I started playing competitively. Um, got promoted twice with that rugby team. Uh, played a couple of second team games. So I went to a level where I would never have dreamt of myself going to. Um, and doing things I never thought I'd be able to do because I'd resign myself to the fact that I was always going to be the guy who couldn't do this. And then since then, I've climbed, ever, never I say, I've climbed from Ben Nevis. Uh, I've climbed Snowden a couple of times. I live half an hour from Scarfell. Oh, so okay. um, wow. I've climbed Scarfell Pike a couple of times. I've just done things that I'd never dreamed of doing in the past. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, wh- and what would you say, um, apart from, I guess, seeking professional help, proper help, if someone's concerned about their eating, emotional eating, <clears throat> What would be those first few steps? Would it would the first step be right? I need to find someone to support and advise me, or would it be get yeah. your steps up? Anything? I mean, well, I guess it's the mindset, uh, isn't it? If, if you're if you're struggling to lose weight, right, and you're you've tried everything, you know, a diet's not going to be an answer because a diet's not going to help you because you've got to think about your relationship with food. And quite often, I work with my clients on something called the inner critic, and the inner critic is what drives people's is that voice in your head that goes, oh, it's okay, just have another biscuit. Oh, you deserved it, you've had a hard day. Or, you know, are you going to give up now? You might as well binge. If you've got that sort of thing, you know, it will be encouraging you to have a diet because it knows if you go on a diet, you'll give up after a couple of weeks and you'll then they can just say, well, you're going to binge now, you might as well. Um, so by dealing with that sort of inner critic and, and accepting it and silencing it, you know, it's really important. So I think you've got to understand where you're at in the journey. You, If you've got a poor relationship with food, right, you need to fix that before you think about weight loss because all you'll do is do this yo-yo diet cycle, mm-hmm. you know, and you'll restrict and you give up all these things. And then you'll, you'll, if you're saying that our oh, food's bad, this is bad, this is good, that's another red flag because it's like you're saying these things about your food and it's like you're demonizing food. And it's like that's not to be demonized, you know. Um, so definitely listen to how you talk yourself, you know, ask yourself, you know, am I always eating to fullness? Am I eating past fullness? Do I even know when I'm hungry? Am I just eating for the sake of eating? And when you're understanding this, you know, it's like, if I feel I have no control over food, then that's where you should seek some help. For that. And did you have to, you mentioned in London that, you know, you you'd go drinking and it was like oh uh, chris will finish this meal off that kind of did you did you find you had to change your 
social groups or it's like no 100% my responsibility so I can hang around with these same people it's my choice whether I eat or not did you get out of that um, environment yeah I sort of yeah I basically stopped going to um I did change my environment I changed who I hung around with you know um I stopped accepting as many invitations to go out to things um and, and I made this I made this conscious choice that for you know two years I was going to work on myself that's it. I'm going to work on myself. I'm, you know, I was going to focus on my health and well-being. Focus on, you know, who I wanted to be. Work on my mindset and realize that, you know, that's that was really important to me. And again, environment's really important. Um, even when I started playing rugby with lads, I used to say to them, and they used to, you know, I thought they'd be funny. You know, we used to go out and still go out. I still go out for drinks with them. Mm-hmm. But I'd say, look, lads, I'm not drinking because if I have more than two pints, then I can guarantee you I'll be in a kebab shop having a large kebab and a large pizza. Um, and they'll be gone before you even get home. I said, because I know what was going to happen mm. if I drink. So I said, I'll still come out with you. I'll still, I mean, but I'm drinking Diet Coke, right? I can tell you, doing drinking games with Diet Coke is horrific because <laughs> when you're down the third pint of Diet Coke, yeah. you want to be sick. Brilliant. So I'm like, oh, don't, don't, don't call Buffalo. Please don't, no, no, no. And like, so uh, yeah, they always find it quite funny, to be honest. They're like trying to catch me out because it'd be more fun watching me go to, go, you know, I was sick before the lads who were drinking oh. because of the diet coke. You know, that will be all that aspartame, Chris. That's what it is. <laughs> That's it, yeah. That's my problem. So. But, yeah, I think it's important to change the environment. It's also about being open. You know, people don't talk about it enough. Because, again, you know, most people, when you say, oh, I've got a problem with food, just don't eat it then. What's your problem? Yeah. But I always say, if you had somebody who was an alcoholic, you wouldn't say, oh, well, just don't drink it then. You, you, People are very more understanding now of people who've got a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And they're like... They'll do their best to avoid it, and they'll even like, oh, we're having the house. We'll do this. Whereas, you say you've got a problem with food, it's like you know, people just look at you. It's funny. What do you mean? You're just greedy, greedy, are you? Why, why can't, why can't you control it? It's like, well, because I can't. You know, I've got to work really hard on it. And do you still, do you still have like daily non-negotiables you have to work on to keep up the momentum? Oh, it's it's horrific. Um, you know, I've been in recovery now for like seven years, and it's like. Um, every day sometimes I struggle. There's still there's still some foods I can't eat. You know, I can never eat chocolate hobnobs and I can't eat Domino's pizza. Um, because both of them are triggers. If I if I had a chocolate couple of chocolate hobnobs, I'd eat that pack and then I would be then looking to buy more. It'd be like a drug, I'd be like, okay, I need to buy some more chocolate hobnobs. And I any pizza or specifically Domino's? Just Domino's. And just domino I could have a I can have a Domino's thin crust because they don't put that glaze around the outside right and it's the glaze around the outside i can't eat wow there's some sort of garlic glaze or something why there's something in that that triggers me right and so when when it comes to like going out to um restaurants and stuff i suppose you know there's always like quite healthy choices or or do you find you just don't go out to eat as much obviously do you do you totally stay away from the mackies and kfc's no, here's the thing. This is why I would say to my clients is that I found food freedom now. So I can actually have KFC. I can have McDonald's because I understand how to eat them and understand that, you know, I, lots of people about the 80-20 rule. You know, as long as 80% of my food I eat is healthy, single source, mm-hmm. nutritious, then I can have that other thing. And, and I acknowledge it for what it is, you know, I will try not to pick McDonald's. I'll try not to pick KFC, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't have the same appeal that they used to have. But if I was going to have one, I wouldn't have any guilt around it. But I'd be very mindful of 
of the choices I make. Because again, it's very easy to slip into that guilt and shame. And I've got to just be mindful of, of overeating and not, you know, uh, you know, if eating to excess. You know, it happens occasionally. It's like just not let it become a problem because. Okay. I'm one day away from back down that rabbit hole. I'm going to go back down that rabbit hole and never come out of it again. And do you, do you drink alcohol at all anymore? Or are you able to bit, have yeah. a couple of pints no and then more. say, no more, no more, thank you? Yeah, I can I can probably manage about one now, maybe two at a push. Right. But even though I, just don't, I don't, I just don't, enjoy, <laughs> I just don't enjoy it um, like I used to. If I did enjoy it, I don't know. But um, I don't say, I'm, I'm not teetotal, I'm not alcohol free, but I don't, you know, was it 21 units a week is what hmm. they reckon. I'll probably have 21 units a year. Oh, okay. So on. Okay, fair enough. And any, any, anything else you do like most days to keep you on, uh, on straight and narrow? Well, I obviously, I'm a, I, I journal how I feel because everyone's, you know, mm-hmm. journal. Um, I need meditation, which is getting really important for me. Um, I've got breathing exercises, all of the normal things everyone recommends, but, for me, I always say to people, you got to find what works for you mm-hmm. and at the right time that works for you. And if, if filling in some long-ass journal isn't going to work for you, then just ask three key questions, you know? Mm-hmm. And building it, so people get stressed with journaling. It's like, well, if you're then presented with like 10 questions to answer each morning and then evening and you've never done it before, it's going to be hard. Yep. So it's like, well, what are the three questions you need to ask yourself? You know, what, are the, what is it you know you want to achieve? If, if if getting your mindset is right, then you know you've got to believe in the process. And if and if it's about affirmations, you've got to believe mm-hmm. the affirmations. Because again, if mm-hmm. you don't believe them, there's no point saying them. Um, if you're going to do meditation, you've got to like learn how to do it properly, rather than just being half-assed at it. Um, yeah. And it's like if you say you're going to hydrate, you know, do everything you can to make sure it works. Whether it's habit stacking, whether it's you know putting everything in a in a, in a plan, scheduling it. Whatever works, you just got to make sure that you do it with conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't, then there's no point. I say to people, save yourself the time, just don't do it. If you haven't got the conviction to do it, there's no point doing it. And how do you, is that a challenge for you when you're speaking to a potential uh, new new client, that, 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 that acceptance of responsibility that they just haven't got the conviction, they can, they can do it, oh, I'm not strong enough. Um, I mean, what the kind of... Uh, not uh, the amount signs, of people, but... honestly, I could, um, I could have, if I accepted everybody, um, one, I would be stressed to hell. Um, I can always tell, but if people aren't prepared to accept responsibility, then they don't even get onto my program because it's going to be really hard work because quite often I have people come to work with me because they need somebody to blame. They, you know, this is why they keep going to PTs and keep doing diets because it's their plan. It's like, yeah, oh, right. well, yeah. Well, listen, I got PT Pete's plan. It didn't work for me. It was like, yeah, because it was his. It's not yours. You know, well, they said it was Taylor's. It's not, you know, how many questions they ask you? Oh, he said, did I, like, was I vegetarian? Did I like meat? Yeah, so that's not tailoring yeah. your nutrition, you know? Um, I said, so you've you know, if you've got a problem with food and your environment, you've got to understand that before saying, oh, eat this, do this, do the other thing. So, but you've got to accept responsibility, you know. And I, I say I've turned a lot of people away who aren't prepared to do the work. So, know, so what is that? Go, so, so what is that first step to potentially working with you? You have some kind of call and you identify whether whether there is a good fit or not, and, and what yeah, happens from it. that point I, on? I offer every single person who works with me, you know, a fifteen to thirty minute discovery call because again, I'm not, you know, um, it's an investment to work mm-hmm. with me, you know, because 
I, I commit one-to-one with people. And again, it's not therapy. This is coaching. So we'll, we'll work on some stuff deep. Yeah, you know, we'll work on the now. And I always say to people, right, if your house is burning around you, too many people are looking for the match that started the fire rather than putting the fire out. My job is a firefighter. I've got to put your emotional eating fire out. If you want to look for the match that started it, great. There's some really good, well-qualified therapists out there mm-hmm. that might help you. But actually, let's focus on the now. Because actually, the only time you can ever eat is now. Yeah. All right? So that's what we've got to focus on. Now, if you want to do that work, that might help you. But and but you've got to do deal with the now. And the only time you can eat is now. So I'm really conscious of that with clients. And again, it's like, you know, you may have some issues. And we may uncover some of them. And you may need to get some help mm-hmm. for that. But this isn't therapy. You know, I'm not looking backwards. I'm looking at the now and looking to the future. You know, we may have to understand where your limiting beliefs have come from, for example, because they'll have come from childhood and from growing up. That's 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 a given. But it's very much on now and working with people. So again, I'm very conscious in the discovery course to understand what have you tried before? You know, if you tried coaching before, what 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 was successful? What worked? What didn't work? You know, um, how long have you struggled with this? You know. Um, are you prepared to invest, you know, physically, emotionally, and you know, financially? Mm-hmm. Because it's going to be an emotional investment, you know, mm-hmm. because you, we're going to have to deal with what's driving that behavior. Um, and again, it's and it's intense, you know, it's it's one to one. It's not, you know, this isn't a, a group thing. You, mm-hmm. you you rock up and we'll sit around the room. I I get I I invest in my clients, which is why I screen them first to work with me. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, it's it's an ongoing lengthy process um the people wanting the quick fix you know like you said earlier it the weight gain didn't happen overnight it's happened over time so to sort that out it's going to take time as well so so what does what does working with uh chris tibbetts look like then is, is it a, a a program of a certain length um mm-hmm. how does how does it work if 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 someone's suitable to work with you it's so basically the first commitment is sort of 16 weeks mm-hmm. because you know nothing's going to happen you know in, in four weeks, in six weeks, you know, so it's a 16 week program to start with, you know, and for that, we just get understanding the basics. We're going through, you know, what is emotionally, what, what is that person's emotionally, because again, it's different for each person. You know, what are those sort of triggers? What are those limiting beliefs that are holding them back? You know, what, how do they currently, you know, what is it they want to achieve in life? Quite often we look at the goals that mm-hmm. people need to set, you know, where is this sort of holding back? I look at, a process called creating their big why on sort of nine key areas. Um, how we create sort of a simple, I say, I'll use the word rules, you know, because uh, oh, you shouldn't have rules because that's what causes problems. But um, other people's imposed rules cause a problem. Mm-hmm. But we all need rules for life. Because if you don't have rules, you've got chaos. Mm-hmm. So I like to create, you know, but if people don't like rules, I say habits. But I like to create a series of simple rules for people. And this could be like, I'll never again eat in the car. Okay. Um, I will always put my knife and fork down between bites. I very I avoid people creating restrictive rules around food because again, we've got to be sensible. But again, if somebody has a trigger food, like I have a rule that I'll never again eat chocolate hobnobs. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine because I understand that, but I've gone through that process. But there's a logic behind me doing it. But I'll happily eat chocolate digestives. I've no problem eating chocolate digestives because I can have two of them. I'm happy. So I work with people to understand. Because this is all about lifestyle change. And even in 16 weeks, to be fair, Andy, we're not going to make – we're going to make huge changes. And I'd expect to see people's binging 
reduce by about 80% in 16 weeks. So if you're like binging every day, you know, we reduce it hugely. But, you know, and some people can go to never binging again in 16 weeks. But again, it's about what else is going on in their life and how sort of, how much they want it. And I think I'm listening to Terry Robbins on this and he talks about people should, lose, I should lose weight. I need to lose weight. And then quite often they don't believe they can because they failed before. So my job is getting people online believing they can eat, <coughs> you know, lose weight, but they can overcome their binge eating and come over to emotional eating. Because when you do that, the weight loss will kick in automatically. Mm -hmm. We just keep failing each time. Because every time we fail on a diet, we're convincing ourselves our neural pathways at diets. Yeah, I need a different diet. It's amazing. Yeah. We've got all this access to all this information. And yet there are certain diets and diet companies that still seem to be thriving people are still parting money for that for that quick fix or yeah, what's well, promised it, to be a quick fix yeah i mean um white watchers was it white watchers, the cfo said basically their business model is made on an 80 percent failure rate Shit. so well. they expect eight percent people will fail and keep coming back and keep coming back wow wow the worst thing, the worst failure, right? I think it's quite embarrassing, quite difficult. Is if you take gastric band surgery, you know, an intrusive <coughs> surgery on your body, the success rate is sixty percent. So basically, you know, four out of ten people, it fails. Wow, that's Which, it's horrible. <coughs> oh, excuse me, I did warn you. I got a cold. You did, um, but do you know why that is? Because quite often, again, I've never. I can only come from working with clients in this. I've never had gastric band surgery. So again, I can only do from, from what's it, but a lot of people I've, I've spoken to didn't have the necessary mindset work. Mm -hmm. They they might, they might talk to psychologists, but they don't work on the related, you know, what's the relationship with food like? Why are they doing this? What's their emotional voice? What's the street? You know, all the stuff I work with clients you know, <laughs> fixes that problem. Wow. And I think that's probably another thing. It's like this week over you know, these drugs, you know, yeah, you can pay, you can pay two hundred quid and have it, but you know, unless you're going to pay that for the rest of your life because you need it to stay slim, if you don't fix your relationship with food, all it is is like a no, it's a sticking plaster covering the problem. Wow, deep. So, um, great place to wrap this up. But of course, what's the best thing people can do to find out more about the emotional eating coach? Where do they go? Uh, so basically, I've. To Instagram uh, at Emotionally Eating Coach UK or my Facebook, which is at Emotionally Eating Coach UK, or they can drop me an email at hello at emotionallyeatingcoach.uk and um, set up a free discovery call, find out where they are, what they need to do, um, if my program's right for them, if we're a fit for each other. Because again, this is an investment in time. Because if you're not fit, you know, and I can't help you, what I can do is I can give you directions if somebody might be able to help you. I've also got a ton of free resources as well that people can use. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you for your time. But are you quickly up for a couple of quick fire questions? Go on in, yeah. Okay. What's your favourite film and why? See, and you can ask that. Um, in Bruges. Oh, yes. Okay. Colin Farrell and... and yeah, oh. uh, In Bruges. Uh, and just because of the dark... I related so much to his struggle when I was struggling... Wow. And I just, it's something clicked when I was, I remember watching it and just something clicked and I went, that's probably my favorite film nice. because I connected with his character and the guilt he was carrying. Perfect. Perfect. And favorite mistake. Uh, favorite mistake. Um, 
Mm, interesting. Uh, my favorite mistake was selling our house in Sandbach and cool. moving to the lakes. Go on. Um, only because, you know, um, it was a great adventure, but it was like uh, then trying to run an online business from a beautiful part of the world is great, but the internet's rubbish. Ah, well, when we first moved to Shropshire, when the internet kicked off, yeah, I think we were on one meg for goodness knows how long, but we've got direct to property now. But the thought of having two teenage daughters on one meg, yeah, yeah, be be horrible. Um, I did a Zoom one evening um, and I had to tell the girls not to use the internet just in case, you know, buffering and all that. And Emma said it was the longest hour of her life, which yeah. is terrible. Again, that's another podcast I could do about teenagers and their technology. But oh, yes, yeah. It's, um, Chris, it's been amazing speaking to you. Obviously, people Thank now you. to get hold of you now. Um, appreciate your time. Thank you very much, and I will speak to you soon. All right. Nice one. Cheers, Chris. Thank you.